This morning, we're starting a new series of sermons um, at Cornerstone. We finished our summer looking at 10 um, markers of healthy missional churches, and we wanted to kick off the, the new school year just kind of centering ourselves in Scripture so that we can, can kind of be grounded and anchored in, um, in the Word of God. So the next five weeks, we are going to be walking through the book of Colossians together. It's only four chapters long, so it's not a very long book, but Colossians is one of the later, more mature writings of the Apostle Paul, and we discover in Colossians a picture of Christ that, that gives us the promise and the hope of a, a fullness of life that we, we seldom seem to experience. So, um, because um, we're, we're getting the series started, let me give you a little bit of background on the Apostle Paul and on the book of Colossians. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you know this stuff, but if you didn't, then, um, then it's worth knowing something about the Apostle Paul because he wrote 14 of the books of the New Testament. And he had a lot of influence over Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So it's worth having a little background about the Apostle Paul. So if you went to Sunday school, you know that his, he was originally named Saul. He was a committed and passionate Pharisee. He was actually trained with, by the best Pharisee, leader of the Pharisees that it was alive in his generation. And so, after Christ died, was resurrected, ascended to heaven, after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the young church, we come across this man, this Pharisee, named Saul. And Saul was, was committed to persecute the followers of Jesus Christ. He saw them as, as enemies of the Jewish faith. And so we're told in the book of Acts that when one of the early martyrs was stoned, when Stephen was stoned, we're told that Paul was there looking on and fully agreed um, with what was happening in the stoning of Stephen. Um, so he gets permission from the religious leaders to leave Jerusalem, to go up to Damascus in Syria so that he could arrest and persecute the Christians there. Again, if you've been to Sunday school a lot, you know what happens. On his way to Damascus, a light comes down from heaven, knocks him over, and he is confronted by the risen Christ, the post-resurrection Christ. A Christ ascended to heaven, and this is the next time that we actually come into contact in a physical way with the risen Christ, and he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? His friends around him heard the noise. They didn't quite figure out what was going on. But Saul, after it, it's over, Saul gets up, tries to open his eyes. He finds out that he's blind. And in the process, he recognizes the risen Christ and what he's doing. He turns his life over to Christ. And then Paul, his name is changed to, or Saul, his name is changed to Paul. And he went on to be one of the great leaders of the New Testament church. Some say the second greatest leader of the church after Peter himself. Um, so, um, Paul, when he, after he's come to Christ, a number of years trying to figure out how to reorient his life, um, he goes on three missionary journeys. They're actually kind of short-term and mid-term missionary trips. 
um, throughout the, the, um, the Jewish world, throughout Judea, and then he makes his way up to Syria, makes his way up to, to Greece, back over to, um, to modern-day Turkey. So throughout that area, Paul does three missionary trips, and he plants churches throughout all of those countries. And it is on his third missionary trip that he gets to the town of Ephesus. In Ephesus, a church is already there, and Paul teaches and nurtures that church for two years. Um, During those two years, we're told in Acts 19 that all throughout the province of Asia, which is actually Turkey today, all throughout that province, people heard about Jesus Christ. We don't know the exact details or how it happened, but it's, it's almost surely while Paul was in Ephesus that he meets this person, this guy by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras was actually from Colossae. Um, Ephesus is 100 miles due west of, of Colossae. Somehow they meet, and then Paul disciples Epaphras. Epaphras then takes the good news about Jesus Christ back to his hometown, now 150 miles east, which is, the, which is called the Lycus Valley. There are three towns there. There's Colossae, there's Herapolis, and there's Laodicea. All three of those towns are mentioned in the letter to the, the Christians in Colossae. So what, what we have is, is, is Epaphras plants those churches. They're really house churches, okay? We have the names of the, the houses where those churches met in Colossae and in Laodicea. And so these churches are planted. That's somewhere um, 52 to 55 AD. We're not sure of the exact date, right? Fast forward five years later, okay? Not, again, not exactly sure of the date, but before 62 AD, And at this point, Paul's left Ephesus. He is actually in Rome, and he's in prison, okay? And you have to read the book of Acts to figure out how he made his way over to be. But he's in prison for testifying to Christ. It actually was his his first imprisonment in Rome was a little bit more like house arrest. He just couldn't leave the house, but people could come visit him. Somehow, we don't know the details, Epaphras is imprisoned with him. And Epaphras has recently come from the Lycus Valley and his home church, the churches that he housed, churches that he planted, and he's told Paul what's going on in Colossae. And while Paul is in prison in Rome, he writes four letters, which we know as the, the prison epistles, okay? It's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Interesting thing is this is the later Paul writing Paul has grown more mature over the years that we, we are acquainted with him in the New Testament. And we have in his prison epistles, we have a clarity on the person of Jesus Christ that is far beyond anything that we had found um, until that time. A clarity sort of like the Apostle John's clarity about the word of God became, become flesh, which also was part of the mature John's thinking. So that's the background. Uh, a couple pictures here. Um, oh, first I'll show you where Colossae is. Oh, man, that's not as big as I thought it was. All right. Colossae is going to be, it's not going to matter to you, but it's right 20 minutes from Denizli, okay? 20 minutes west. And Ephesus is going to be over here on the coast. Over here is Greece. This is Istanbul, Ankara, and going south over there, Syria, um, Lebanon, and Israel. All right, next picture here is, um, this is what Colossae looks like today. Interestingly, it has never, ever been excavated, which we don't know why, but nobody's ever figured out that they were going to go do that. Um, so that's one picture, and the next picture is um, the other side of that hill with an amphitheater. So what happened to Colossae? All right, 
One thing that happened is, is shortly after Paul wrote this, the east-west um, trade route moved further no- north and bypassed Colossae. But what really um, happened there is around 62 AD, there was a massive earthquake that pretty much flattened the city. And nobody's ever lived there um, since biblical times. The city's not um, been in existence at all. Okay, that's background. That's all you're going to get. Um, if you, you read enough in the New Testament, you start getting these interconnections between different books. So you find out that Philemon, to whom that's one chapter letter written from Paul, Philemon was also uh, lived in Colossae. And then you start to come across other names that you um, would start to, to recognize. All right, I want to explore um, Colossians chapter 1 with you, but I want to do it in a very um, particular way. Um, I want to walk through Colossians 1 with you as close as possible to how you might read through it yourself. And here's why. I want you to know that you don't have to wait for some seminary-educated guy like me to tell you what the Bible means to get something out of the Word of God. I want you to know that you can read the Scriptures with the Holy Spirit giving you wisdom, and you can draw things out of the Scriptures on your own. And so my goal in this sermon is to try not to tell you anything that you wouldn't have figured out by yourself. You don't have to have any Greek background. You don't have to know any of that history I just told you about Colossae. You can read the Word of God on your own. So I want to walk through chapter 1 of Colossians with that idea of how you might walk through it if you were reading it. And one of the things that that is always a good good, um, habit to get into when you're reading the Word of God is to start with a prayer for the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and insight. So let's pray together. Jesus, you promised that you would send us the Holy Spirit. And you taught us that one of the main things the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. So as we come, to, whenever we come to reading your word, but as we come to Colossians chapter 1 to read it this morning, Holy Spirit, would you cause us to see what you want us to see? And would you convict us of how you would have us respond to the scripture? So that we're not just kind of reading as an academic exercise. So we're not just kind of, kind, of, kind of checking the box of doing our scripture reading for the day or the week or whatever. But so that we are coming to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we are coming to you to let you speak to us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Begin, obviously, first couple of verses of Colossians chapter 1. Um, Paul's greeting. If you read many of the New Testament um, epistles, you figured out that this is kind of a normal um, kind of a greeting. Um, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother, Timothy, same one to whom First and Second Timothy is written. We are, he's from, Timothy's from Ephesus. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May our God give you grace and peace. Kind of a, a typical greeting of the Apostle Paul. I don't want to land here very long because we could look at all kinds of pieces of that, except for one thing. One of the things that Paul does when he writes to Christians is he frequently says that he longs for them to experience from God 
He longs for them to experience grace and peace. As I thought of that, kind of just chewed on that a little bit this week, I realized how much better our world would be if we longed for everyone that we met to experience from God our Father, if we long for them to experience grace and peace. So when you're on the subway, you see some random people, and you pray, Lord, would you let them experience grace and peace? When you're with your fellow workers or, or fellow students or professors, to, in the back of your mind when everything's going on, to be praying, Lord, I pray that the people in this room will experience your grace and peace. When you get cut off in traffic, then September 1, when you can't even drive down the street because there are too many U-Haul vans and you're impatient, that your prayer would be, Lord, as I look at these people, would you let them experience your grace and your peace? If you're married, your spouse, would you let my, my spouse experience grace and peace? Your antagonist, your critics, instead of being annoyed and praying that they would get out of your life, Lord, would you let them experience... The world would be such a better place if we would learn to greet people with the greeting of Paul, longing for people to see God's grace and peace. All right, verses 3 and 4. Paul goes into now his prayer for the Christians in Colossae. He says, We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. It's a common triad for Paul to talk about faith, love, and hope. In 1 Corinthians, it's faith, hope, and love. But the, the tri- it may come in a different order, but it's a common triad for Paul that kind of encapsulates the entire Christian life. From, from the beginning of our Christian walk to putting our faith in Christ and then growing in our love for all God's people and then culminating in this confident hope for eternity. Now, when I read through these verses, I thought, you know what? I want to live my life so that when people think of me, I don't want them to think about whether I'm smart or whether I'm successful or whether I'm accomplished. I want people, when they think about I'd like to live my life so that when people thought of me, they would remember there's a person of faith in Christ There's a person who loves all of God's people. And there's a person with a confident hope for the future. Now, many of you know that Pastor Danny's um, mom passed away this last week. I never met this woman, okay? But I heard just this general consensus of people thanking God for her faith in Jesus Christ, her love for all God's people, and her confident hope. That's the reputation I want. That's what I hope people will talk about at my funeral. Not about whether I, I made more money than the next guy or was more successful than someone else. So, questions I ask when I read this scripture. How can I increase my faith, my confidence in Jesus Christ? What are the things that I can do to actually own that and increase my faith in Christ so that I have that kind of reputation? And secondly, I ask myself, what can I do to increase my love for all of God's people? What kinds of of habits should I put in my life? How should I see people? How should I greet people? How should I respond to people so that I am increasing my love for all of God's people? And then what do I do? What can I do to increase my confident hope for eternity? 
And those are things that, that we can reflect on. And, and if you had enough time, you can make a list of three or four things for each of those that would increase your faith, your love, and your hope. Apostle Paul continues his prayer in verses 5 and 6. He says, you have had this expectation, that's the hope, the confidence. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you, it's going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So at one point this week, I started thinking, what did it take for me, Bill Johnson, um, uh, growing up in in Illinois, um, what did it take? What did the gospel have to do to get to me? And I realized, well, it had to kind of had to kind of move out of the Mediterranean world, and then it had to make its way to made its way through Italy. The gospel kind of message, and then up into Europe, and then for for my my pathway that I heard the gospel, it had to make its way to Britain, and eventually to New England, where um, my dad, when he was 16 years old in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, for the first time ever heard the good news about God's wonderful grace. My dad shared it with my mom. The two of them became followers of Jesus. They get married. They move to Illinois. They bring up their children to, to want to love Jesus and to want to experience God's wonderful grace. And I thought of the gospel, um, how it has moved so that I could hear the good news. For lots of you, it had to make another jump to another continent. For lots of you, it had to get to Asia. And then many of you, it had to get back here for you for the first time that you actually heard the good news about Jesus. Um, And think about that time when you first heard the good news and understood it. Think back for a moment to that. Some of you were probably fairly young. Others of you were were in high school, or maybe it's, it's fairly recent. Remember how in awe you were of God's wonderful grace because you heard and understood that God was for you no matter what. That Jesus had, had given his life for you. And the spirit of God would reside within you. Remember the awe that you had of God's wonderful grace? That God would honor you unconditionally forever because of Jesus. When I think of that, I start to get overwhelmed with praise and thanksgiving that um, I will never, ever get from God what I deserve. I will always get far, far better than I could ever deserve. Remember? And, and when you read a scripture like this, you come across a phrase like God's wonderful grace. And you can read it and you can kind of run on to the next thing. Or you can park there and say, I need to reflect more deeply on God's wonderful grace. Let's go on to verses 7 and 8. And Paul says, you learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. Remember, he's now in Rome with Paul. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. And if you were to jump forward in in the book of of, um, Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul continues. He says this further about Epaphras. He says, Epaphras a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus sends you his greetings. And I, I love this. Think of, of, of 
what kind of a person Epaphras was. Paul says, he always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and complete, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. Paul says, I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers at Laodicea and Heropolis. Again, don't you want a reputation like that? Wouldn't you love for the people that you grew up to know that you pray passionately for them? That you long for them to experience fullness of life in Christ? That you earnestly intercede for them? And that you're confident in them that they are following the whole will of God? So where are you supposed to be in Epaphras? Maybe it's your hometown. Maybe it's your your home friends. Maybe it's here in Boston. Where are you called to be an Epaphras who will pray for others the way that he did and have the honor that he received? Verses 9 through 11, Paul continues his prayer. He says, we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. Then look at all the things that he prays. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Next screen. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all of his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy. Now, we talked about this before. We actually know the things that matter to us the most in life because if we're followers of Jesus, the things that matter to us most in life are the things that we're praying about. They're the things that we are pleading for God to do and work. And I look at this list. Don't you long for complete knowledge of God's will for your life? Don't you long for all spiritual wisdom and understanding, not just to cram your head full of ideas and facts, but to have a deeper wisdom and understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit active in your life. Don't you long to, don't you want to live so that you will honor and please the Lord in everything? I mean, my greatest regrets are when I displease and dishonor the Lord in my life. I long to please him in every way. I long to produce good fruit, every kind of good fruit. Like, like the apostle, like Jesus says in John um, 15, I want to produce fruit, much fruit, fruit that will last. Don't you long to be strengthened with all of God's power? There is a spiritual power that the Holy Spirit can infuse into our lives that can overcome our fears, that can overcome our pain, that can enable us to be bold, that can empower us to make a difference in the world. Don't you long to know all of God's power, um, his glorious power, so that you will have all patience and endurance? I want to be the kind of guy that, that knocked me around, and you know what? I still, I still honor you because of Jesus. I want to be the kind of person that, that you test my patience, and you can never get to the end of it, because I've learned patience from God. And endurance. And then Paul says at the end, he says, I want you to have joy. I want to have a kind of joy that it doesn't matter the circumstances. There's this underlying strength of joy, even under pressure. If these are what matters to us, matter to us the most, 
could we maybe start going back and praying these things for ourselves and for each other so that we become all that God wants us to become? Paul in verses 12 through 14 says that he is always thanking the Father. And why is he thanking the Father? He says, because the Father has enabled you, enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Paul's always thanking the Father for three things. He's always thanking the Father because he has enabled us. Um, you guys know if you've um, paid attention to your heart at all, you know how bent and broken it is. And that if God didn't enable us by his spirit, we were never going to lean back towards Christ. God enabled us um, to experience all of the great blessings of being people who walk in the light. Think of that contrast. People who walk in the light, people who walk in darkness. Um, you know, when, when the lights are all out and there's no, no lights outside to help you see, you stumble around when you're in the dark, right? That's when you stub your toe. That's when you run into things. That's when you, you hit your shin. Contrast that with walking in the light. And so many Christians, sadly, aren't really experiencing the joys of walking in the light because they're messing around with one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom, and they're sort of in the shadows. But God has enabled us to experience all the blessings of his inheritance as people who walk in the light and understand his wondrous grace. Secondly, God has rescued us. He's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. We no longer live in the shadows, no longer live in the darkness of sin. Not only has, has sin's punishment been erased, but sin's power has been broken over us as well. We've been rescued from the punishment and power of sin. And then thirdly, Paul's always thanking God our Father because he has transferred us out of this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. While an unredeemed world keeps, keeps running into to brick walls and pain and suffering that is the result of human sin and selfishness and systemic evil, we're invited to walk in the light and then to invite the world to step out and walk in the light. So, um, so I went to bed last night, and um, somewhere within a block to a block and a half, there was this horn. No, um, somewhere a block to a block and a half, out my window, I heard this man and woman screaming and yelling at each other. And I thought, how painful it is to live in the darkness. I woke up early, about 5.30, whatever, they were still screaming and yelling at each other. I couldn't even tell because the sound was bouncing around. And I thought, we are so blessed to be people who walk in the light and then can invite others to step out of darkness because of what God has done. All right, so then we get to the second half of, of Colossians chapter 1. Paul shifts his thinking. And if you were reading through the text, you would, I mean, it's clear, there's a break right there in the text. There's a different title in your Bible. So the first half Paul has been Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And in the second half, Paul shifts and he's, he actually talks about how Jesus Christ is supreme over all things. And so um, as we get to, um, to the next verses here, um, starting with verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all 
creation. For through him, through Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him. We're still talking about Christ. Everything was created through Christ and for Christ. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. As I thought about these verses, I realized that there is a foundational supremacy of Christ in all things. And it started before the creation of the world. Actually, at creation, creation, if you read through Genesis, the first three chapters there very carefully, you realize that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all present at creation. So the Trinity existed before the world, the universe, was created. And, um, and, and when you, you look at the main point that Paul's trying to get us to realize in these verses, it is that Christ is supreme over all things. These verses have, they remind us of others, what are called Christological, great Christological texts of the New Testament. These, are right, these verses are right up there with John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is up there with, with Philippians chapter 2, that, that Jesus, even though he was equal with God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he'd emptied himself and became a servant. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, we read, Long ago God spoke to us in many ways, in many times and in many ways through the prophets. But now in these final days, God has spoken to us through his son. And this echo almost sounds like the same as Paul in Colossians 1. God promised everything to his son, and through the son, God created the universe. Jesus Christ is foundationally supreme over all things. Interesting thing about that is it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's still true. Believing it or not believing it doesn't change anything. This is foundationally true from the creation of the universe. First, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christianity has never taught that Jesus was a great moral teacher or a great leader or just another prophet. Christianity is always taught that when you see Jesus, you've seen God. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. And that changes everything. That makes Jesus supreme over all things. Secondly, Jesus existed before anything was made. Um, in creation, we read at the Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God's there. Then we read that the Spirit of God hovered over the void And then we read that God spoke the word and it came into existence. The word is a reference to Jesus. Through Jesus, God spoke and the world came into existence. But not only is the universe created through Jesus, but these verses tell us that the universe was created for Jesus. Now, the way most of us live when we're not paying attention is we tend to think that the world's supposed to be made so that we can get our way, right? We act as if the world's supposed to give us what we want. The world was not created for us to have our way. The world, the universe, creation, it was created so that Jesus' will would be done. 
Jesus is supreme in all things. But then verse 17 surprises us a little bit because most of us were raised in a naturalistic and mechanistic view of the world. We have this idea that that some bang happened and the universe popped into existence and now it's kind of chugging along on its own. It's almost like like it's a watch. It's a self-winding watch that, that it just kind of keeps ticking and ticking and ticking. But that's not a Christian worldview. Christian worldview is that Jesus existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Scientists try to figure out and wonder, what holds this universe together? The Christian worldview says that it is Jesus. That were Jesus to withdraw his presence from the world, the universe would implode upon itself. That is a distinctly Christian worldview. And the amazing thing is that Jesus so loves this creation that he continually and constantly oversees it so that it can thrive. The world was made through Jesus and for Jesus, and Jesus holds all things together. And then verse 18 says this, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is first in everything. Paul's point here in these verses is Jesus Christ is supreme over all things. That's the foundational supremacy of Christ. It doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. It's true. It is what it is. But that's not good enough. Because even the demons know about the supremacy of Jesus. Beyond the foundational supremacy of Christ in all things is a formational supremacy of Christ in all things. Not good enough just to understand the truth without designing our lives in a way so that Jesus is supreme in all things in our lives. What Paul would encourage us to do is to make Jesus Christ the center of our lives. That we would step out of thinking that the world's supposed to be giving us what we want and that we would put Jesus Christ in the center and work so that in all things the will of Jesus Christ would be done. That is the formational supremacy of Christ in all things. That's what Paul goes on to talk about in verses 18 to 22. He says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies. We were all separated from him by our evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Every single one of us, our sins separated. We, even when, you, guys, you know this, right? Even when we know the right thing to do, we still don't do it. Even though we know there will be hell to pay, we still choose our way instead of pursuing God's ways. It's that bent and brokenness that apart from God, we would never come back. But Jesus Christ died a physical death on the cross. Through his blood, 
God reconciled the world back to him. So all the things that are broken and wrong in us could be put back right. So all the things that are broken and wrong in creation could be put back right because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And when we step into that formational supremacy of Christ in all things, look at how we're changed. um, Let's go to the the next slide. Look at how we're changed. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. We have, because of Jesus, been invited in to experience the, the wonder of God's grace. We are invited to thrive in the midst of the Trinity where there is fullness of life, where we can finally be fully human and fully alive. God's not far away. We don't have to go searching someplace for his love. We don't have to wonder whether he accepts us. We have been transformed because we've been brought into his presence. And the more we abide with Christ, the more we walk with God, the more we put Christ at the center of our lives, the more we are transformed in living within the presence of his wisdom and wonderful grace. But then look at that next phrase. No, not next scripture. Stay, stay in there. And we are holy and blameless as we stand before him without a single fault. Now, I have to tell you, I read that verse and I go, uh-uh. I know me pretty well. I am not holy and blameless and I do not stand before him without a single... I got all kinds of faults. The better you know me, ask my wife, the more faults you know that I have the more I know that I, I don't think so. But God does. Because of Jesus, Jesus has given us his righteousness. We stand before God, holy and blameless. We never have to worry about God shaming us ever in our lives. Yeah, we're going to trip up. That's going to happen. But God is always going to treat us better than we deserve. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means that we put an end to performance-based spirituality. We don't try to get on with God because we're good enough for God. We don't try to, to, to win God's approval because we do enough right things for God. Everything comes out of grace and gratitude, knowing that before God... God looks at us and he sees us in the perfect fullness of what he created us to be. And now he's just in the process of getting us there. That is, I mean, talk about God's wondrous grace. That is the grace of God. We didn't deserve this at all. But Jesus loved us enough. And God was committed enough that he will transform us into everything that he longs longs for us to be. So, What's required of us out of this? That's what Paul's going to talk about as he finishes um, this section. He says, we must then continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it and not drift away from the assurance that we received when we heard the good news. Continuing to believe in this truth, it's not just we chose Jesus once, but this is continuing, this is ongoing Believing in the truth that Jesus is supreme above all things. 
How do we continue in that truth? Here's some things we can put into our lives to help us continue and not get off of that truth of the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. We can read the word of God more and reflect on it more. Just pick up the Bible and spend some time. Don't check the box. Don't read three verses and get bored. But stay with the word of God. And that discipline in our lives nurtures us to continue to believe without in any way shifting off of the fact that Jesus is supreme in all things. Here's another one. Talk about the truths of God with your spiritual friends. It's amazing how much spiritual conversation anchors us to continue to believe in the supremacy of Christ in all things. Um, Beyond reading the scriptures, here's an idea, folks. Um, Decide that there's one book of the Bible that you really want to dig into and you want to actually study it so that you don't just read it, but you actually go on to some good websites and learn more about it. Wouldn't it be kind of cool if we each became kind of proficient in some, some passage of scripture so that we could bless our, our family and our friends with what we've learned from the study of the word of God? There is a place for the study of the word of God. And you know what? When you're 50 years old, I will be able to listen to you for 10 minutes and know whether you've ever studied the word of God or whether you've just done these these fly-by, run-bys of the word of God. Um, here's something else, too, that will anchor us in, um, in continuing to believe in the supremacy of Christ in all things. Do a little bit of reading on a Christian worldview. We are inundated with all kinds of other ways of thinking about the world. But there are some good resources, things like love God with all your mind. There are good resources in training us to think foundationally that Jesus is supreme above all things. And then secondly, we are to stand firmly in this truth that Jesus is supreme in all things, um, which means that I can read the daily news through the lens of Jesus is supreme over all things. Now, how do I think about what's happened um, in the world in those last days? I can base my marriage. I can raise my children with this, this commitment to the truth that Jesus is supreme in all things. I can view my vocation around the perspective that Jesus is supreme in all things. It means that I can refuse to be distracted by the world, the flesh, and the devil off of the truth that Jesus is the center of my life. And then thirdly, Paul says it's our job to not drift away from the assurance we received when we first heard the good news. How do we not drift away? Let's nurture a more robust life of prayer. Not just talking to God or talking at God, but both speaking to God and listening to God. We can can guard ourselves from drifting by just paying attention to what God is doing in us and not just reading or, or, or thinking something and then three minutes later we forgot. I mean, James talks about looking in the mirror and it does no good if you look in the mirror and you walk away and you can't remember what you saw. So paying more diligent attention. Um, get into a small group. There's hardly anything better for our ongoing nurture to keep us from drifting away than having to see brothers and sisters in Christ, not, not in church, but in a living room someplace, in a house church, 
um, talking about the things of God. And you know what? We can develop habits of praise and worship, of thanksgiving and exalting in God, weekly together here, but daily in our lives. We could choose to not, not close our eyes and go to sleep without praising God for how we've seen him at work that day in our lives. There are things we can do so that we will protect ourselves from drifting. So, there is an invitation from God from Colossians chapter 1. There's an invitation from God to acknowledge the supremacy of Christ in all things. So, that means different things for different ones of us. Some of us here have never actually really stepped over the line of faith, confessed our sins, and asked Jesus to become the leader of our lives. Colossians 1 invites us to do that once and for all. Now, some of us wonder whether we've done that. You don't have to wonder because you can draw a line in the sand and say, as of here and now, Jesus, I have sinned. Will you forgive me? And will you become the leader of my life for the rest of your life? You know what? God's wondrous grace is that easy to tap into. It just takes a decision. Now, it takes the rest of our lives to figure it out. <laughs> but there's a decision that we make. So some of us are called in response to Colossians chapter 1 to put our saving faith in Jesus once and for all. Now, some of us, however, have done that. We know we've done that. But we also know that we have a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom. We're somehow walking in the shadows. We know the foundational truth that Jesus is supreme in all things. But we're not experiencing the transformational truth that Jesus is supreme in all things by our lives changing. There are times when we have to come back and say, we have wandered and we have drifted. But Jesus, we're coming back. I would love for for you to make a decision to start this school year coming back to Jesus and making Jesus the center of your life so that you'll experience the formational power of the supremacy of Jesus in all things so that Jesus is the center. And then the third group that's here, there are a lot of us here who are there. We know that Jesus is foundationally supreme and we are experiencing his formation in our lives because he's the center of our lives. Here's what I just invite you to do. Just praise God. How can we sing his praises enough? When we understand his wondrous grace, when we understand what it means to be transferred out of darkness into light, when we understand that that we get to become more and more fully human, more and more fully alive forever and ever, then we have a choice to just praise him with all of our hearts. So, I want to leave you um, a moment of silence for you to decide what you need to do with the supremacy of Christ in all things. So, um, so we're going to bow our heads and, um, and I'll just have a one-sentence prayer and then in just a moment the praise team will come up, worship team will come up and lead us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your scriptures like Colossians chapter 1. Thank you that we can all access your word which tells us your will and tells us your ways. Now speak to each of our souls right here, right now. 
about how you want us to respond to the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. I pray in Jesus' name.